Let's listen as Pastor Phil shares more from Revelation chapter 7. Verse 4, where John says, And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Who are these 144,000? They are who? Israel. They're Jews, right? They're going to be marked by God as His servants. They're going to be evangelists, really. Imagine God sealing and sending out into the world 144,000 Billy Grahams or Paul the Apostles, they are going to have an incredible ministry during the tribulation period. They are going to convert, as we're going to see next week, so many people, it's, you can't even number them. How many people are going to come to Christ during the tribulation period? You, you, people say, well, the church is out of here. Are people going to get saved? i got news for you. They're going to get saved more than they've ever gotten saved in any period of human history. I mean, God's going to really, really send these folks out, and at one point an angel is going to go through heaven declaring the everlasting gospel. God is going to give everybody on the face of the earth an opportunity to hear the good news. Many will believe, many others will not, and they will kill those who do believe. But it's interesting how that... Many groups claim to be the 144,000, don't they? Jehovah's Witnesses claim they're the 144,000. And they used to teach when 144,000 people became Jehovah's Witnesses, boom, that was it. They were going to go to heaven and live in heaven. Well, when their number exceeded that, they had to get a new revelation. And the new revelation was, well, the first 144,000, they go to heaven. The rest of the Jehovah's Witnesses, they live on the earth in a paradise state. Historical Mormonism used to teach that they were the 144,000. Ellen G. White in the Seventh-day Adventist claimed to be the 144,000. Garner Ted Armstrong in his Worldwide Church of God claimed to be the 144,000. Now, I don't know. God seemed to make it pretty clear in verse 4 who they were. But to further clarify, for all those people that still might have some doubt as to the identity of who these 144,000 people really are, the Holy Spirit goes on in great tedious detail, I might add, to list them. Now let me read it to you, because you got to get this, the impact, right? It's so tedious because we're such blockheads that God says something clearly, we just don't get it. And even if you're going through all of this, you have people who know we're the 144,000. No, no, we're the... So next time somebody knocks at your door and claims to be one of the 144,000... Ask him, what tribe are you from, and can you prove it? Verse 5, of the tribe of Judah, 
12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. We get it, don't we? These 144,000 are Jews, not Jehovah's Witnesses, not Worldwide Church of God folks. They are Jews. Now, why do so many groups try to make themselves the 144,000 or spiritualize the text to write Israel out of the picture? Why is that? Well, the answer to that question is something called replacement theology. Replacement theology, where basically the church has replaced Israel because they rejected their Messiah, therefore they forfeited all the promises, and now the church has been grafted in, we have replaced Israel. They're no longer in the picture. There's no further plan of God for the nation of Israel. This is sometimes known as Reconstructionism. Sometimes it's called Kingdom Now. But this is not a new idea. Let me tell you the roots of this. We'll have to finish then. But this all got its start back in Constantine's day. Constantine was a Roman emperor. And at one point he has a supposed conversion experience where he claims to have converted to Christianity. Uh, A lot of people, including myself, do not think that Constantine was really a believer. But he thought he was. Now here's the problem. Up until this point, you had all the church leaders and Christians uh, interpreting the Bible in such a way as to say that the kingdoms of this earth, ruled by man, are basically evil. Because man is basically evil. And that because the world is corrupt and the kingdoms of this world are corrupt and so on, someday Jesus is going to come back and he's going to take over the world, establish a kingdom on the earth, a millennial kingdom, right? Replacing all these earthly rulers and kings because they're all basically corrupt. But now you have an emperor of Rome who's a Christian. And he doesn't like the fact that Christians are going around teaching that all kingdoms on this earth and rulers are basically evil, and someday the Lord is going to dispose, to depose them and replace them with another kingdom, which is going to be a kingdom of righteousness. So what do you do? Well, Origen, one of the church fathers, decided, well, you know what, maybe we have been reading these prophecies wrong. Maybe they're allegorical. That's what they are. The kingdom is not literal. The kingdom is in the heart, right? That's what God meant. And so you have today amillennialism. Amillennialism, which is a, a doctrine that believes there is no literal kingdom coming. It's just spiritual, allegorical. Of course, Origen was replaced by Augustine. Augustine. Augustine was a brilliant guy. He was the father of Catholic theology. He was also somebody that Calvin greatly admired and quoted profusely in his institutes. So whatever Augustine taught, Calvin picked up and taught basically, which meant that it spread through the Protestant Reformation. And Augustine picked up on this idea and so spiritualized some of the texts that dealt with 
Israel and blessing in the kingdom age and said, well, this is talking about the church. That from what I understand, some of the King James Bibles to this very day in the headings sections of certain Old Testament passages that speak of Israel's future blessing in the kingdom age will have a a heading that that reads blessings to the church. While other sections that speak of the curses upon Israel read cursings upon Israel. (laughs) But because of this mentality that the Jews crucified the Lord, and, and really, who put Jesus on that cross? We all did. All right, to single out the Jews as if they were the evil ones that crucified the Lord. I mean, Jesus went to the cross for all of our sins. But because the Jews rejected their Lord, you have those that say, well, they forfeited the promises of God. They're no longer the covenant people of God. They have been replaced by the church, who is now the new covenant people of God, replacement theology, amillennialism, and so on. Even though God said very clearly in his word that four out of the five covenants that God made specifically with Israel were unconditional, which meant that they didn't have to do anything. Palestinian covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, were two unconditional covenants, which where God basically said, no matter what you do, I'm giving you the land and not the little sliver they have today. All the way from Euphrates River to the Mediterranean, from up north to, uh, to her, her, the Mount, Mount Hermon, all the way down to the Nile, that's the land that God gave to Israel. They've never possessed it, really, but they will someday in the Millennial Kingdom. Only the Mosaic Covenant was conditional. It was a promise of God blessing them uh, materially, if they obeyed him in keeping the commandments. But the others were unconditional. And Paul picked up on that in Galatians and said, the same kind of covenant that God made with Israel through Abraham is the same kind of covenant that God made with us through Christ because, in a sense, we are children of Abraham because of our faith in the same Messiah he believed in. And God made an unconditional covenant with Abraham and his descendants, so that no matter how badly the Jews blew it, it didn't matter. God promised to give them the land, and they would always be his people. They would never be disowned, just as Jesus promised us in the new covenant, which is also an unconditional covenant made in his blood, not dependent on our faithfulness. Aren't you glad Your salvation is not dependent on your faithfulness. I'm sure glad it's not dependent on my faithfulness because there would be no way we could ever have any peace. There would be no way we could ever have any assurance of sin, excuse me, assurance of our salvation. Because if it all depended on me, wow, I would be a nervous wreck that I was not living up enough every day to earn salvation. God took it out of our hands completely and said, I'm going to give it to you as a free gift if you believe in my son. Now, once you receive it, obey me. Out of love. And out of the knowledge, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So Israel has not forfeited anything because you can't forfeit an unconditional covenant. You can't forfeit an unconditional covenant. 
If God promises to do something for you or give you something unconditionally, how can you say if you don't measure up to a certain standard, you're going to lose it? That doesn't even make sense. So the church has not replaced Israel. God still has a plan for the nation of Israel. If you really want to dig into this in detail, get the CD from Romans chapter 11, verse 1. We spent a whole evening looking at this. So the church has not replaced Israel. And notice, there are not ten lost tribes either, as some people say. I mean, he seals 12,000 from 12 tribes, right? There are no, there's no such thing as ten lost tribes. People say, well, when the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, they took those Jews captive in, into Assyria, but then they distributed them around the entire Syrian empire, and they, they were lost. They're not lost. God knows where they are. <laughs> Besides that, when the Babylonians conquered the world, they conquered the empire of Assyria. And at one point, Cyrus let all the Jews go back to their homeland. All the Jews, those that were scattered previously through the Assyrian empire, those that were now in Babylon, he let them all go back to Israel. So there's not 10 lost tribes. As we ended last week's study, we said that there were 29 lists of the 12 tribes that appear in the Bible. The first one appears in Genesis chapter 35, verses 22 through 26. The last list appears chronologically in Ezekiel chapter 48, verses 30 to 34. I say chronologically because that passage is prophesying about the future millennial kingdom. So that's the last list that we see in the scriptures although it's prophesying about a future time during the thousand-year reign of Christ. We said there was something wrong with this list, though, of these 12 tribes as it's listed here in Revelation 7. In the list in Revelation 7, two of the tribes are not sealed from God's judgment. Those two tribes are Ephraim and Dan. And the question is why? Well, let's see if we can't figure it out. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 12. And there are many other passages I can, we can look at. I'm going to look at a couple with you tonight. 1 Kings chapter 12, starting at verse 28. It says, Therefore the king asked advice, made two calves of gold, and said to the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel which brought you up from the land of Egypt. And he set one up in Bethel, which is in the area of Ephraim, and the other he put in Dan. Now this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before this one, uh, before the one as far as Dan. When the kingdom divided, remember when Solomon handed the kingdom over to his son Rehoboam, Rehoboam was not so wise, and he rejected some of the counsel of the older, more godly, no doubt, advisors that had uh, advised his father, Solomon, and um, he was heavy-handed with the people. Uh, they wanted some tax relief, and uh, they, really, they really needed it. Solomon really overtaxed them to finance his building projects and all. They really needed some tax relief. But Rehoboam's young friends who he went to uh, and asked their advice said, look, you've got to show these people who's boss, you know, and talk tough to them and tell them you're going to 
tax them even more if they don't get in line. Well, this didn't sit well with the people. And so they, the ten tribes split, leaving Judah and Benjamin to the south. And the ten tribes to the north became a separate nation, Israel, and then Judah to the south. And the king of the northern ten nations was Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Here was his dilemma. He said, look, he said to himself, look, if the temple is still in Jerusalem, it's still down in Judah. And therefore, you know, if the people go down to their worship, God, their hearts are going to start getting kind of restless. They're going to start thinking maybe we made a mistake. They're going to have second thoughts and, and go back. And then they're going to wind up killing me. So what I need to do is I need to establish a couple of places of worship right here to the north. And so he decided to make two golden calves. He put one in the southern part of Israel, in the area of Ephraim, Bethel, and one in the north area, up near modern-day Lebanon, uh, which was the area of Dan. So idolatry entered into Israel in these two tribes, the tribe of Ephraim and the tribe of Dan. Now turn to Deuteronomy chapter 28, and let's look at verse 58 through 62. God said, if you do not carefully observe all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring upon you and your descendants extraordinary plagues, great and prolonged plagues, and serious and prolonged sicknesses. Moreover, he will bring back on you all the diseases of Egypt of which you were afraid, and they shall cling to you also every sickness and every plague which is not written in the book of the law will uh, the Lord bring upon you until you are destroyed. You shall be left few in number, whereas you were as the stars of heaven in multitude, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Now, there are other passages we could look at, but these passages are basically saying that God needs to judge the tribes of Ephraim and uh, Dan because it was through them that idolatry entered into the land. And so the the, uh, judgment of God upon these apostate tribes is going to take place during the tribulation period. And because God has sworn, when, when God judges the world at that time, he is also going to judge these two tribes. And so he does not seal them at this time with the seal of God on their foreheads, which in a sense is a seal of protection to protect them from God's judgment, which is going to be poured out. So he does not seal the tribes of Dan and Ephraim. You say, well, what's going to happen to them? They are going to make it through the tribulation period. They are going to come through it few in number, even as God promised in Deuteronomy 28, verse 62. And the reason they're going to come through it is because God is gracious. They are going to come into the millennial kingdom because God promised that he would never wipe out any of the tribes totally. Uh, They're going to get judged and they're going to come through this thing few in number, but God's grace will be upon them and they will not be wiped out completely. Well, back to Revelation 7. In verse 9, John said, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, 
Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Who is this great multitude which no one could number? Well, they're actually tribulation saints. We learn that from verse 14. When one of the elders asks John, who are they? John says, sir, you know. And the elder says, these are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation, who have washed their clothes in the blood of Christ. So these are tribulation saints. They're wearing white robes, which of course signifies that they are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. The only way that we could ever enter into heaven is if we are clothed with his righteousness as opposed to the filthy robes of self-righteousness, which uh, Isaiah talked about in Isaiah 64, verse 6. Uh, All of our righteous deeds, all of our righteousnesses are like filthy rags in the eyes of God. There is no way we could ever, ever do anything that would merit God's favor in earning our salvation. It's a free gift that he gives to us by our faith in Christ. As Paul said throughout the book of Romans, the righteousness that gets us into heaven is a righteousness that comes from God by faith. So that's what we need. That's what they are clothed in. And they have palm branches in their hands. Now, this could be intended by the Holy Spirit to bring to our minds the Feast of Tabernacles, which, you know, you'll find in in Leviticus 23, but that was a feast that was celebrated with palm branches. It was also called the Feast of Ingathering. You have to understand, in Leviticus 23, God gave to Moses seven feasts. They were the feasts of the Lord that were to be given then to the children of Israel for them to observe throughout the year. There were three, basically, in the springtime. There was um, unleavened bread, Passover, and the Feast of First Fruits. Fifty days after First Fruits, there was one in the late spring, early summer, called Pentecost. And then in the fall, you had uh, trumpets, Day of Yom Kippur, and then the Feast of Tabernacles. They all took place, those last three, around late September, early October. Some of them were agricultural in nature. The Feast of First Fruits was a feast whereby the first shoots of the barley harvest. Barley was a winter crop. You planted it in the winter, so by the time spring came, some of the first shoots were poking their way up out of the ground. You would take those first fruits of the barley harvest, cut them down, take them to the temple, and and give them to the priest who would wave them before the Lord as an offering. And the idea was you were giving to God the first fruits. The first belongs to God. Right, The tithe is, is the idea. We talk about giving a tithe to the Lord. That's a first fruit of the resources of the money God has given to us. And God had them tithe or give to him the first fruits, which was their way of saying to God, Lord, everything you've given us, we want to give you first back. I mean, you're, you're number one. And when the people brought the first fruits of the barley harvest, to the Lord and offered it to him, it signified that God would receive it and would guarantee them a great crop. Well, 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits, you had another feast. It was also an agricultural feast. It was called the Feast of Pentecost. Remember now, Christ rose from the dead on the Feast of what? First Fruits. What happened on the Feast of Pentecost? The church was, was born. Now, the Feast of Pentecost 
was also an agricultural feast. It was also a kind of a feast of first fruits in a sense, in that it was the first fruits of the wheat harvest. And the idea was that you would take some of the wheat and you would bake it into two loaves and uh, you would offer it there before God. Interestingly, that was the only feast of the seven whereby you would use leaven. You know, leaven in the Bible is a type of sin, right? And so God said, all the feasts, no leaven. Well, we can understand that. And yet, first, uh, the Feast of Pentecost, make two loaves with leaven, bring them down to the temple, offer them before the Lord. You're thinking, what? Why leaven? This is the Feast of the Church. This represents the church. What, what is this? I don't understand what God's trying to say. Well, the two loaves, right, signify that Jew and Gentile have become one new man in the body of Christ. Yeah, but why the leaven? Folks, while we are on the earth as the true church of Jesus Christ, I'm not talking about the apostate church. I'm not talking about the dead church on the corner. I'm talking about the evangelical church, the church that is the true church. Even in our lives, there is going to be sin in us as long as we are in these bodies on this earth. And not until he comes for us and we see him like he is at the time of the rapture, are we going to be made like him and get our glorified bodies, and finally, we're going to drop that sin nature, and we're going to be glorified and made as perfect outwardly as Christ has made us inwardly in our spirit by our faith in Him. You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him, day by day.